0: We, we have uh, I think all of us have different ways in which we we learn best, and I know some of you are teachers, and we you have different teaching styles, preachers, we have different preaching styles and and so we, there's different ways of teaching and learning there There are those more formal ways of of education, classroom instruction, and then there are those more informal ways, just kind of hands on training or on the job training we We talk about being book smart versus being street smart, and we have some very book smart people in here, we have some very street smart, street wise people in this church, and, and, and so we there's different ways of learning, there are some lessons that can only be learned, or at least can only be learned well, we would say the hard way, um, and many of you have learned lessons the hard way in your life, this is how I learned to use a pocket knife, or how not to use a pocket knife, was by cutting myself many times, uh, a circular saw, same thing, and a table saw, same thing. And so I have the scars all over my hands to prove uh, these lessons that I learned. And thankfully, I still have most of my digits and all of them, but almost, almost intact. Um, I learned how not to clean up a computer uh, the hard way. Back in the days, uh, when I, when, when we, there was not much memory on the computer, so it was always to try to get as much off as you could, anything you don't need, and deleting those necessary system files, and, and, uh, basically destroying it. And so, uh, so we, we learn lessons the hard way. When we say learning the hard way, we're, we're talking about being educated just kind of by living life. You, you make mistakes, you learn from them. You, you you learn from the difficult and unpleasant experiences of life. That's generally what we're talking about when we say learning things the hard way. Well, Jesus's training of the twelve is not so much focused on that kind of book learning. Now, there were many times that He sat the disciples down and just taught them and, and explained to them the Scriptures, the Old Testament, and gave them new revelation. And, and so there was a lot of that just kind of didactic Teaching and instruction that Jesus did with his disciples, but there was there was much more. Probably most of the education that Jesus did was was more hands-on. It was learning things the hard way. Uh, that was much of the training of the twelve happened that way. That's at least what's recorded for us in scriptures. And so, and I I think we can attest to the fact most of us, if you've been a believer a long time, much of the learning that you've had much of the discipleship much of the sanctification in your life is oftentimes come through those the the trials of life and god often does very rapid work in changing us and transforming us and growing us through hardships um and it's growth that would be much slower if it weren't for the hardships. And sometimes we, from our perspective, it would be non-existent. I would not have changed like I did if, if I hadn't been allowed to go through that experience. That's not to say we should go around looking for trouble. And so that we can grow more. That's not, the, that's not it. And that's not to say that we always understand the lesson that God is teaching us in our trials while we're in those trials. Many times it's... Years later, or many times we don't even, we're not able to connect the dots, but, but, but we're confident that God is changing us. But, and, and this is what we can be assured of, is that no sorrow, no grief, no loss, no hardship is ever wasted by God. He wastes nothing. That, that He will force all things, as Justin was saying earlier, that He will force all things to work together for our good and for His glory, and that includes pain, includes suffering and hardships. Well, we're picking up where we left off last week in, in John chapter six, and and you remember last week we looked looked at the what we call the feeding of the five thousand, which was really more like fifteen to twenty thousand people, and Jesus taught the disciples in that scene, and it, it was indirect teaching. Again, it was kind of learning the hard way, but it was it was a powerful and much needed lesson for the twelve. He drove into their hearts this truth that we said that that we can't we can't lord you can that was that was the crux of the message that jesus was wanting them to get and they needed to get jesus dropped this logistical nightmare in their laps thousands of people hungry people that needed to be fed and they had no money and they had no food except just this little boy sack lunch and it was too late in the day to go anywhere and and there wasn't really many places to go anyway and so this 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 Daunting situation. And he asks them. Can, can we feed these people? And they get to the point where they say. We can't. Can't do it. But then Jesus. in, in, in Miraculously feeding these crowds. He teaches them that he can. He is able. There is nothing he cannot do. And that was a powerful lesson. That they had to learn. For them to do what they needed to do. What Christ wanted them to do. And the usefulness that they needed to have. And so there is that lesson. And then there's really not much time that elapses here at all between that lesson and the next exhausting lesson that the disciples need to get and that Jesus is going to teach them. As soon as the feast is finished and the leftovers are collected, there were no dishes, dishes to clean, no macaroni and cheese to scrape off plates, JK. So this was not carrying dinner. Uh, and, and so as soon as the meal is over, Jesus immediately puts the disciples in a boat, sends them across the Sea of Galilee, and then He goes up on a hillside to spend time alone with His Father. And, and, and so the, the, the twelve, as they get into that boat, they, they're thinking this is just simply a mode of transportation. They're thinking, okay, this is quicker than, this is quicker to go the five miles across the lake than it is to walk the eight to ten miles around the shore. And so that's all they're thinking. They don't realize that the boat is a classroom, a classroom in the school of hard knocks, as we'll see. And so this is Jesus continuing to teach him. So he puts the twelve in a boat, he pushes them away, and then he goes off alone. And while the disciples disciples are in a boat, we just read, this huge violent storm just crashes upon the Sea of Galilee, and it stirs the sea up, and it threatens their lives. And so the question that just sets us up this morning is, why? Why why did this happen? What, What is this for? What... What, and what was Jesus wanting them to see? What was He wanting them to learn through this scene? Because as we'll see, it's all a setup again. He's He's orchestrating this. Well, this is just the outline that we'll be working with. It's just when storms come, and they come. We, and, and I, I don't think that it's wrong at all because this is Jesus is preparing them for their future and for their lives and for their ministry and for what they're going to face there are going to be many other storms that these disciples experience and there are many storms that we face in our lives and some of you are facing now some of you have some of you will we all will when storms come what what do we need to know first thing is this is that jesus protects us in ways we don't even recognize he protects us in ways we do not recognize John doesn't make this clear, but Matthew and Mark also contain this same episode, both place it right after the feeding of the five thousand. But they tell us that again, it's not clear in John, but they tell us that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat immediately so they're compelled to. It's not an option. It's not. Well, if you want to take a boat, it's there or you can walk, whatever you want to do. No, it's an order. You get in the boat, you go and and. And, and it was probably sometime between seven thirty and nine o'clock at night, as, as the sun, as it was getting dark. And and it's kind of surprising because what was the whole point in Jesus taking the disciples to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee up into those foothills? He, he wanted to teach them. He wanted to spend time with them alone. He wanted to he wanted to pray, and and they, and they needed to rest. And so, so he that's why they that's why they went there. And they so they just arrived there that same morning. And, and it's been this crazy and full day because the crowds followed them and they showed up. And it's this healing service and this feeding frenzy all day long. And, and it's just been this exhausting day. And, and, and then, then he sends them right back across the sea just where they came from. Just a few hours really since they arrived. And not only that, Jesus isn't even going with them. He sends them off on their own. So surely you think after the day, all that they've seen and this feeding, of the this feeding of these thousands of people, they have all kinds of questions for Jesus. Like they want to talk to him. They want to, they want to know more. How is this? How did this happen? What does this mean? And, and Jesus, no doubt, had many things to teach them and, and 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 that they needed to hear. So why would Jesus demand that they leave right away? Why not at least wait until morning? Kind of. Debrief that evening and then send them along. John, John doesn't tell us that he made them leave, but he does tell us why he made them leave. He gets to the point. He knows that we will have read Matthew and Mark already, and the reason is because of the crowd's response. So look at verse fourteen with me. So back up to verse fourteen. When the people saw the sign that he had done, the feeding of the, the miraculous feeding of this crowds, they said, "This is indeed the prophet." Who is coming to the world? You notice that little pronoun, the. Not a prophet. The prophet. This is language that comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, and Moses says to Israel, "The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen." And so this is this is a reference to Jesus, his prophetic reference to Christ. And and as far as it goes, the crowd the crowd has it right. He is the prophet. He is the one. But but unfortunately, the, these people, they call him a prophet and then they immediately start telling Jesus what to do, which is exactly what Moses says not to do. You listen to him, that's the exact opposite of what God said their reaction should be to this prophet. And you see in verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. Jesus withdrew again to a mount, to the mountain by Himself. Now, we don't know, we're not told that Jesus was relying upon some divine ability. And, and we know that Jesus knew all things that were in man. He could perceive the thoughts of people as God. We're not sure if He was relying upon that or if it was simply human perceptions that He started hearing the murmurings and, and He could see the kind of the reaction of the crowds to what they have witnessed. Whatever it was... He knew what was going on. He knew what was brewing in this, this astounded mass of people, and so he's observing this, and in and and this excitement of the crowd, at the, this miracle, it, it starts to turn to murmurings, and the murmurings turn into chanting, and the chanting turns into anger at the oppressors, Rome. and, and the, that anger starts to turn into action. I think that's kind of what's transpiring here. So remember, this is the time of the Passover. This is the, the the highlight of the year for for Israel. This is like their Independence Day as it, in terms of nationalistic pride, and it's at fever pitch during the Passover. So th- th- everybody's everybody's just kind of on edge already. And then to see this, and they're thinking, if this guy, if this this must be the prophet, and if he can feed all these thousands of people miraculously, maybe maybe he can help us overthrow Rome. So they're ready to take him by force. And make him king. And we say, that sounds so bad. He is king. He's king of kings, right? But their their motives aren't spiritual. They're really not even religious in any sense of the term. They're they're simply political. They they want Jesus to be their military, political deliverer to set the Jews free from Roman oppression. So that's what they're really after here. They see Jesus as kind of their ticket. And, and, And here's the thing. This is what I'm saying when 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 one of the things that we see Jesus is he protects us in ways we do not even recognize in the storm and this is exactly what Jesus is doing here with the disciples. He knew that they would be tempted to get on that bandwagon. <laughs> he knew it. They 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 wanted to become kingmakers. This was a perennial problem for the disciples. You see it over and over in the gospels. They they, they they wanted honor and power and success by being joined to Jesus, this one that they saw and they were beginning to see more and more as the Messiah, as this true king, this promised one they and so they're asking questions well who's going to sit on the right and who's going to sit on the left and who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom they they were they were clamoring for that and so with this this crowd just worked up into a frenzy the disciples would have been tempted to jump right in there and and the crowd would have would have wanted to make them kind of their poster children and lead the way as these closest disciples of jesus and this is just a no-win situation for the twelve if they if they stayed around they would have been caught up in the, these revolt plans and and so what does Jesus do? He just sends them away he gets them out of there he 's protecting them he's protecting them from the crowds he's protecting them from themselves and and he sends the disciples away he disappears by himself and the whole the whole all the plans for revolt revolt just kind of fizzle out and that's it. So Jesus is protecting himself, protecting the disciples. He's protecting them from wrong ideas about himself, from wrong ideas about his mission, why he came, what what he's there for, and how it's going to be worked out. He, he didn't want them to miss that the cross is going to precede the crown. They're suffering first and glory later. And he's not there for political domination. He's, he came for public crucifixion, and the disciples hadn't they didn't get this yet. So he. He's, he lets them, He gets them out of there. And so by sending them away into this storm, think about this, He sends them into a storm to protect them from wanting to give Jesus kind of political backing instead of giving Him just humble, broken trust. And, and so He takes them from this celebratory scene to this, this dark, violent storm scene. And I just say to us that Jesus protects us in the storm. He guards us even through hardships and using hardships at times in ways we do not understand. He does this. He, he, he often uses hardships. To the disciples, you think about it, put yourself in their shoes. To them, it felt like Jesus was putting their lives in jeopardy. That's what it felt like to them. But in, in reality, Jesus was protecting their souls and maybe their bodies, because they might have been caught up in this military revolt. But I would just say the soul is more important than the body. It is to Christ, and it should be to us. The soul will last forever. Jesus cares about our bodies. He cares about our physical protection and our healing. But He really, really cares about our souls. And He'll use whatever it takes to protect us. And so in times of storms, again, remember that. Jesus protects us in ways we don't, we don't even recognize. Second thing, when storms come, Jesus prays for us in, in a way we cannot even comprehend. Prays for us in a way we cannot comprehend. Matthew and Mark tell us that why Jesus went away by himself to be alone up into the hillside and it was to pray. It was to spend time with his Father, communing with the Father. And and I just, you just use your your biblically informed imagination and just think about what that would have been like if you could just witness that scene. Christ alone. The God, eternal God, the Father, with fellowshipping with and communing with and talking with. God, the Son incarnate. Spirit, no doubt, involved in that. And so, just the Trinity at work there. It's just oh, what a unique, unique thing to consider. Just what that would have been like for Christ to have this alone time with His Father. And then there's so much to... To pray for so much to talk about. All that has happened already. All that's coming. And Jesus knows exactly what lays ahead for Him. Talking about those things with His Father. Praying praying for the slow growing faith of the disciples. Praying for the frenzied crowds. Praying for the lost sheep of Israel. Praying for the nations. And certainly this is part of it. But certainly one of the things He's praying for is the twelve. It's the twelve. They're, they're in the storm. In this boat. And... Jesus is no doubt praying for them. And, 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 you know, our preference, of course, is just not to be sent into the storm. But sometimes God knows we need a good storm. But he, He doesn't abandon us. Jesus is praying for us. He remembers us. He will not forget us. Jesus still prays for us. Romans 8, verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25, He always lives to make intercession for us. And so He's still, he's still active on our behalf in heaven today. When we, when we pray, it's not like there's no conversation happening with God, and then we somehow start a conversation with God. When we pray, we are entering into a conversation that God the Father and God the Son are already engaged in. Jesus is always interceding for us. He's always praying for us. He's always aware of what's going on. He's always orchestrating. And so, so Jesus is, is always praying for us. And, and whatever is happening in your life right now, however dark and winding and troubled your road seems to be right now, you can have confidence and certainty that Christ is praying for you now. That is a great comfort. It doesn't make everything go away and everything just happy, happy, happy. But it, it helps. It's balm for a troubled soul. Say, Christ, you're praying. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Third, when storms come, Jesus prepares for a. Excuse me. Jesus prepares us for a future we cannot anticipate. He prepares us for a future we cannot anticipate. Look, at the end of verse 17. It was now dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them, and the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. So the disciples, just taking the scene here, the disciples have had one of the most intense, exhausting days of their lives. Remember, when they arrived by boat on the eastern shore of Galilee, Sea of Galilee that morning, they were already worn out and exhausted. Coming off of this this ministry that they've been doing, sent out in twos and and laboring and healing and being persecuted and, and, and just they're exhausted. That's why they're getting away. And then the day turns out to just be this all-day healing service and feeding of the thousands. And so they've, they've had the longest day of their lives and they're finally going to get in this boat and hear the water and, and they can rest. They can take turns rowing and they'll be there in no time and, and get needed rest. No, that's not what happens. The, the longest day of their lives turns into the longest night of their lives. Um, it is terrifying all-nighter. Now, I hate staying up late at night. I am not a good night person. I never have been. I mean, throughout high school and, and as much as I could in college, I mean, I was in bed by like 8.30, I mean, 10 o'clock was late. Now, and so I was not the life of the party at nighttime. Now, in the morning, hey, you know, I was annoying to people that like to stay up late at night, I'm sure. But I, I, I mean, I remember we would have those lock-ins with the youth group, and I thought that was the dumbest thing in the world—to to intentionally deprive yourself of sleep so that you felt like dirt for a week uh, and got sick, and that's what always happened to me. So I, I don't do well at late at night. I know some of you, you, you I've. I've heard people suggest this when we had young children. You know, what you do is you just drive all through the night to get where, you know, you go back to Texas, just, just drive all night and your kids will sleep there and they'll be rested when they get there. And I'm like, you, you I would not be alive if, that, if I had heeded that instructions because we would, we, would, we would have all been taken out. Um, but, but, we've, but that said, we've all had long, exhausting days that turn into long, exhausting nights. I mean, there have been some long days and then we end up in an emergency room and you just don't sleep and you're, it's, it's just a hard, long night. You get the phone call in the middle of the night that wakes you up and, and your world just kind of collapses. So we've we've all had those experiences and that's kind of what the disciples, just kind of take that personal experience and get a sense of what the disciples are dealing with here. They're already worn out. And then this, it's dark, it's late, there's no... No, They're not pulling out smartphones to get the little flashlight. I mean, it's dark on this water. And, and there's clouds, so there's no moonlight to light things up. It's just the 12, text says, that Jesus is not with them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And, and there, there, there would, on the Sea of Galilee, that, and it's still true today, there, there are these spring storms that can just break out with a fury. You have the hot desert air. You have the cold water and, and the this, this, this Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level, below the Mediterranean Sea, so there are these deep ravines that go down to the Sea of Galilee and wind will rush down there and the storms will kick up and so you just have this, this, this recipe for these fast growing violent storms and so they're out in the middle of this sea, which is really more like a lake, it's six miles at its widest and, and so it's, just not, you know, it's, fresh, it's basically a large freshwater lake. And, and, and they've, having rowed already three or four miles, again, the widest part, six miles, where they're going was probably about five miles, but they're probably blown off course by the storm, and, and so they're still a mile or two from the other side at this point. In Matthew, Matthew's account, he says that they were a long distance from the shore still. So they've, they've probably careened and off course, and it's just been a disaster And so verse 19, when they rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. And So Matthew tells us that Jesus came in the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch of the night was from about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., how we count time. That is the part of the night I am absolutely incoherent. And and so 3 to 6 a.m., and, and again, it should not have taken the disciples very long to cross the lake. It didn't take them long in the morning. Favorable, favorable conditions, but this—the again, Matthew, Mark say that the winds were contrary. Just it was a headwind. It's not just a kind of a gentle headwind, but this violent gale force headwind that was pushing against them and stirring up the sea. And so the waves, the wind. And they're just battling all these elements all night long. They're completely worn out They've, from fighting the, the boat in this storm, fearing for their lives. And now, and, and and what? What has happened? Jesus has been in the hills of Galilee alone up to this point for several hours. Well, they're there battling in the boat, the storm. He's watched the storm come in. Christ has. He's the one who makes storms. <laughs> And, and, and he, doesn't, he doesn't even need his divine knowledge to know what the disciples are dealing with. I mean, he can look out across this lake and see the treacherous conditions and this, this lightning and the wind and everything that's breaking out there. And so he just can look out. And you, you, so you see this contrast. The disciples in this boat just being violently moved around and forced around by this wind and the waves. And they're panicking and they're in fear of their lives, being beaten up this, by the storm and working feverishly just to survive this thing. And so that's one scene. And then you have Christ sitting, praying to His Father and calm. And even when He comes out on the sea, when He's in the seas, He's walking. No big deal. He's not, not you know, trying to get across to them. He, he's I mean, he actually, for Him to, to to walk across and to catch them, He's walking at a pretty good clip because He's able to catch up with them. It was effortless. You see. Why why does it happen this way? Think about it. I mean, we're familiar with the story. Why does it happen this way? Why does Jesus go to them? Is it just to save them from physical danger? Save their bodies from being fish bait? Is that that all this is? I mean, he could have done that with a word from the hills. He could have said, be still. And the storm just goes calm. Clouds disappear. He could have done that. But why walk on the water? Why go to them? Because it's not just about saving their physical lives. I mean, he is doing that. It's more than that. This is a sign. This is the fifth of the seven signs that make up this, the bulk of John's gospel account. He's, he's this is a this is a miracle that Christ wants to perform in order to grow their confidence, their faith in Him, and and so He's He's teaching them. This is the lesson for them. And 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 then we ask, why wait until the fourth watch of the night? I mean, you think they could have got it sooner than this? Save them? Was it was Jesus not paying attention? Was he just kind of messing with the disciples? What is this about? I mean, I think well, one, we, we who are we to question God's ways? I mean, that's the the big answer. But I think we can even attest in our own lives. There are there are lessons. Some of the most important lessons God teaches has come to to us. in, you could say the fourth watch of the night. What I mean is that the extended suffering, and that's some of the most Difficult kind to deal with. I mean, we can we can deal with very hard things, but when hard things become long things, oh, that's, that's very painful, very hard to, to, to test the faith. But extended suffering is not a sign of God's disfavor or His distance from us. It's, it's part of the mystery of His providence. And so He might have something to teach us in the fourth watch that we wouldn't get otherwise to, to reveal something about Himself for the disciples He wanted them to. To, to come to this point of desperation, like, like as they did in, di- during that same day we can can 't do this we can 't save ourselves we 're not going to make it and so Jesus deliberately sends them into the situation that would reveal their weakness and their inability to to preserve their own lives so that they would increase their faith in him when he saves them and so in the fourth watch of the night in and, and, and the fourth watch of trials, you we need to let go of any cord of self-sufficiency that we're still holding on to. Any, any ditch any thoughts of "I can do it on my own" that that reside in us, and they do. We 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 still still struggle with this. I I got this. I can do this. This independence. Treat trials as God's means of increasing your faith and your confidence in Him. Don't don't waste trials. First. James 1, 2-4, you can look at that, we won't have time to go look there, but uh, there's a there's a hymn by John Newton that I'm uh, thinking of, about the, there's a line of, of one of the verses, and the hymn is, I asked the Lord that I might grow, and so this is the verse, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know, and seek more earnestly His face. So this, the hymn writer is saying, I, I want to know the Lord. I want, His, I want to believe Him more. I want to grow in His grace. He says, "'Twas He who taught me thus to pray, and He, I trust, has answered prayer. But, in, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair." So God was gracious. Jesus answered the prayer. But this is what Newton's saying grow in his grace to grow in confidence in him but he answered in a way that almost drove me to the the despair i was right at the edge of complete desperation and this is what jesus is doing with the 12 he's he's pushing the limits and 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 yet it's it's to teach them it's for their good so we we need to say whatever it takes lord whatever it takes to to grow my trust in you do it that's a dangerous thing to pray but it's how we need to think into verse 19 they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened, the text says. And so as the wind is howling, the waves, waves are battering the boat and, and, and there's lake water just kind of blasting them in their face as they go across. They see something. So most likely they're rowing with their backs toward their destination. So they're, they're looking where, they, where they've come from. And so they see this kind of figure, this figure of a person making their way um, across the sea, walking on the sea. There are liberal explanations of this like there are of anything miraculous in the Bible that, that they were actually closer to the land than they realized and Jesus was walking on the land while they're in the boat or some said there were these rock outcroppings and Jesus is kind of like just hopping and skipping across there trying to get it. It's just crazy. And he's walking, this figure is walking on water. I mean, now you. there are modern magicians, illusionists that they walk on water, and you can you can get on the internet and see exactly how they pull that stunt off, and it's really not that complicated. Um, but but th- here he is walking on water, humanly impossible. I mean, when Brooke and I went on our honeymoon um, many years ago, almost 19 years ago, <laughs> 18 and a half years ago, uh, to Utah, we went snowmobiling one day, and we'd never been, and and it was this remote um kind of ranch area outside of park city utah and and um they kind of got us into this big field this big meadow and had just this deep powder and they just kind of said have at it well it didn't take long before we get our snowmobile stuck and they'd come and try to try to get us get us unstuck and so we'd have to hop off of this thing and as soon as you hop off the snowmobile it's just like like up to your waist and this powder and trying to crawl out and, it's just hopeless. And then we're looking at the guides that are with us and they're just like walking on top of the snow. And we're like, how how do you do that? I mean, they're just wearing regular shoes. And they're like, "Oh, you just got to walk light." And so what do you, what does that mean, to walk light? <laughs> I mean, these are bigger guys than we were, and here they're walking on the snow to the walk light. We we never figured out the walking light thing. We just kept sinking and we were wet and cold and um, but uh, but you cannot walk light enough on water to pull that off. Um, you can't run fast enough like in the cartoons and you know, get across the lake. This, this is, this is, and it's not even some calm, tranquil lake that this figure of a person is walking on. This is a violent, raging sea. And again, the language indicates this. he's not struggling. He's just walking. He's making good pace. And they all see this and they start to freak out. The text says they're, they're frightened. They were frightened. They were scared out of their minds. And don't act like you wouldn't be either if you're in their situation. And they're already afraid of the storm and the sea. And, and ancient Near Eastern peoples, they, you know, we have this kind of fascination with sea and underwater. And so some of you are scuba divers. And, and we, we, we love the water. And it's kind of sport and recreation. Most people were afraid of the sea. I mean, you look at the Psalms and how the seas are spoken of, the deeps. And it was a frightening thing. It was, they're, they're kind of seen as death traps. That's how, that's how people die. That's what the seas were good for. Yeah, you can fish, but it's, you, you get on, you get off. You, didn't, you don't just do it for sport. And, and so you add to that this, this figure coming towards them on the water in the midst of this storm. And so their conclusion, Matthew says, is they, they said it's a ghost. It's a, it's a ghost. Verse 20, though, but Jesus said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Not be afraid. So, so what is Jesus doing? He's preparing them. He's preparing them for a future they can't anticipate. He's, he's training the disciples. This is all a setup. He wants them to feel their weakness. He wants them to feel their inability to save themselves. He wants, them to, to, he wants their fears to be dissolved by an awareness of Jesus' presence. This is all preparation for their future, for their lives, for the ministry. And In a sense, Jesus is preparing them for his physical absence after his ascension. But to, to 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 scare disciples, Jesus is going to commission them. Go make disciples of all nations. And then how does he end? He says, "Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." And and I think that there had to be conversations afterwards. Jesus was, had to tell them that he was praying for them because how would the disciples have known otherwise? And I think the lesson is even even when I'm absent, I'm there, present. And so so he's helping the disciples. Jesus uses storms in our lives. To teach us and to prepare us for future usefulness. And you see it in passages like 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. That God comforts us in all our afflictions. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He brings us through trials. And we receive comfort from God. And that enables us to comfort others. And So God, God prepares us. He's preparing us in the storm. In ways we, we don't even... For things we don't even realize. Last, last thing, Jesus provides for needs we don't realize we have. He provides for needs we don't realize we even have. So Jesus spoke to them. He must have been pretty close to the boat at this point for them to hear him. You think of the wind and the waves and how loud that is to be in that situation. And yet Jesus says, it's I. Do not be afraid to hear him. And, and we, we've heard that. Have you heard that command anywhere in Scripture? Do not be afraid. Oh, yeah. if, you've, if you've read the Bible, you've heard this a lot. This is the most common imperative in the Bible. Do not be afraid. I mean, we have people, you know, people that really don't read the Scriptures and kind of are skeptics of the Bible. They, they, they love to say, well, the Bible's just full of these, you know, these do's and don'ts and, you know, just these kind of, you know, ridiculous commands. And, and that's what the, the these burdensome things that you can and you can't do. And you read through the Scriptures. That's not the case. I mean, the most common command, again, do not be afraid. Do not, do not be afraid. The Bible majors on just calming us down, helping us, comforting us. And on what basis would Jesus command them not to be afraid? Because because the storm's really not that bad. Oh quit whining. It's just a little rain. It's a little wind. No. It was it was serious. It was a deadly storm. Was it because they shouldn't they shouldn't be scared to see a figure walking on the water? No, of course they should be scared. They never seen anything like that. That's not normal. So, so what's the basis for this command? Don't be afraid. What is it? It's me, Jesus. This is I. Ego, a me in the Greek. You now, just, just file that away because it's going to come back next week and in the weeks to come. Ego, a me in the Greek is this emphatic pronoun. I myself am. I am. Because we're going to see these statements that are going to start piling up in John's Gospel. I am. I am the bread of life. We'll see this next week. I am, I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. These I am statements are going to start coming. And this is what Jesus is saying. This is a New Testament equivalent of that Old Testament. The name for God, I am. Exodus three fourteen. I am who I am. That's what you tell the people. And so Jesus is saying this of Himself. I'm, It's Me. I am the I Am. And I'm with you. He's providing for the needs of His disciples in the midst of the storm. And the first provision that He makes for them is His presence. His presence. He's with them. The remedy for fear that Jesus offers them is Himself. I'm here. What we What we need more than anything else when we're afraid is not assurances that our circumstances will get better. That they're going to change and the winds of change are coming or that they're really not that bad or that others have it much worse than you do. Oh, that's supposed to help me. But what we need is a bigger view of Jesus Christ. That's what Christ offers Himself to the, to the fearful among us. And we are fearful people. And, and we may have a rough and, and kind of raw exterior and we, we act like we're not afraid, but we have those things that we're afraid of. And when we're afraid, when we're when we're worried, what are we basically doing? We're we're kind of making ourselves out to be prophets, prophets of doom. We're 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 making neg- negative predictions about the future. Things are not going to turn out well for me, for someone I love and care about. You're you're assuming that circumstances won't turn out for good, and so you're focusing on the wind and the waves and the circumstances. This can't possibly. Turn out for good, and and what is Jesus basically saying? You need to see a bigger picture. You need you need to see a bigger God. You need a bigger view of God. You need to you need to see me. You need to see my power, my love, my grace, my presence. Someone said, "Faith is not stirring ourselves up to hope for the best, but realizing that our God is faithful, able, and willing to save. We can we can trust Christ and not be afraid because we know who He is and what He's able to do. And so." You get down to the, the essence of what fear is. It's a theological problem. Theology is just our understanding of God. We have a we have a an insufficient, inadequate understanding of God when we are afraid. And I trust me, I speak of, I I, I can join that fear you know group. As I, this has been a perennial struggle of my own life. And 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 but fear. It's it's my view of God is too small. I fear something more than I fear God. You have in Scripture these. His encouragements and, and the Psalms. When I am afraid, I put my trust in You. We're all afraid, and so where, where does my trust go? It's not coming up with little mind games again to, to, to make you think that things aren't really that bad. You know, what what wind? You know, we just kind of pretend that it doesn't exist, that the storm's not really happening. That's not it at all. It's not enough to say toughen up, quit whining. I don't want to be a whiner. It's not enough to medicate your fears away, and there are plenty of medications that can kind of dissolve those anxieties. It's just that I need, I need a bigger view of God. I need to, I need to know His presence. And this is the first thing that Jesus provides for us in the storms. Is His presence. I mean, the disciples, they just thought, we just, what we need is to get out of here. And what they really needed is they needed Christ with them. And they had it. Verse 21. i got to pedal fast here. Then they were glad to take Him in the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land at, to which they were going. So this is the second thing Jesus provides is His power. There's, there's more than and there's more than one miracle at work. You probably notice this. It's, there's the miracle of Jesus walking on water. You go into Matthew's account, and this is the account we're more familiar with of this scene. That Peter actually goes out on the water to Jesus. So Peter walks on the water. There's the miracle of the wind stopping the moment Jesus steps into the boat, and then there's the miracle that they immediately arrive safely where they're going. So there's spatial uh, spatial distance that's just immediately. Uh, shortened, and so they're there. And so this is, His power is on full display in here. And this is what the disciples needed to get. And, and notice, it doesn't say Jesus you know, stood and rebuked the wind and anything like that, raising His arms and shouting some incantation or anything. He just climbs into the hole and the storm stops. That's what Matthew tells us. It's done. And it shows, again, Jesus' power over creation. If He can stop the storm, who, who started it? <laughs> who has authority over that? And in the storms we face in life, job loss, disease, persecution, abandonment, whatever it is, loss of any kind, Jesus provides for us as well. He provides us with His presence, assurance of His presence, and He provides us with power that we need in the moment. He is always with us. He will not leave us or forsake us. And He always gives power in the moment. He gives grace that is sufficient for for his power is made perfect in our weakness so he he provides for us in ways again that we don't even for needs that we don't even realize we have so storms come you're in them if you're not in them now you will be in soon and they come when we least expect it and so when they come what we one of the things we have to do is we have to stop and we have to do a little self-talk here not the kind of self-talk that will know people think you're insane or something like that gives evidence of insanity it's it's the it's a, it's quite the opposite this is a kind of self-talk that keeps us sane it keeps us thinking right we calm ourselves down we, we we make sure our feet are placed squarely on the rock that is jesus christ and are secure in him and and so the bible is full of this kind of self-talk we I alluded to it in prayer earlier psalm 42:11. why are you cast down O my soul why are you in turmoil within me hope in god for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. So, so talking to yourself in this way, it gets us back in touch with reality, it, 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 with, with the things that you know are true. Because when you're in the storm, you, you kind of lose sight of that. You're focused on the wind and the waves. And, but this is just this kind of self-talk that gets us back into what's true. And so... It's true even when you find yourself in the dark valley and when you find yourself in the storm. And so just then my last just kind of closing points of application. We'll just walk through these really quickly. Just self-talk for sanity in the fourth watch of the night. We, we all need this. This is the first thing. Just, just say these things to ourselves. It's kind of flowing from the passage that we're looking at here. first thing that we say to ourselves is, He led me here. He led me here. I mean, Jesus put the twelve in the boat. They're following His instructions they're doing his will they're not running from god like jonah and they're 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 obeying the lord by getting into the boat and and yet the storm still came and and whatever you're going through whatever you will go through you can take comfort in the fact that god has not abandoned you he's he's not turned his back on you he he's led you there and he will continue to lead you through this that's the first thing. He's led me here. Second thing I can say to myself is he's praying for me. He's praying for. Me. We've we've already said a lot about this, but they're not a, they're not really alone. They're not on. They're on their own, but they're not. Jesus is standing with them in prayer always, and and for their safety, for their change, and and they were as safe as they could be. There are there are famous painters who have painted, tried to, to to capture this scene, and some have chosen to focus on Jesus praying for the disciples and the storms kind of in the background. And then others are focused on the disciples in the boat with the storms raging and Jesus isn't there. But what you really need to capture is you need a composite picture of the two together. And I don't know how you could do that. Uh, with Photoshop you can, obviously. But, but that's, that's the picture. It's that While the storm is raging and the darkness is swallowing the disciples up, and, and, and they are, in fact, perfectly safe. They are safe. For upon the hill the Lord is interceding for them. And that is true for you and me as well. The third thing we can say to ourselves is that he will come to me. He will come to me. It happens every time a storm comes. Um, the Lord is never more real to us than when the waves get high. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. And it, it, he says it's, it's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The disciples aren't deaf, but Jesus wanted them to know that he could be counted on. So after nine hours of rowing, when their strength is, is almost gone, and they were wondering whether they would make it or not, he comes to them, walking on water, and he, he will come to me. Forth he will help me grow. He will help me grow. In the end... In Matthew's account, which again records that episode of Peter walking on water, a story most of us are very familiar with, but in the end, Matthew tells us that the the group, the disciples, when they reached the land, they they worshipped the Lord, and they said to Him, Truly, you are the Son of God. So you see what Christ is doing there. That That is evidence of growth on the disciples' part, because they had not made that confession yet, at that point. And here, Jesus brings them through this so that they come to the point where they, they better know Christ and they have this confidence in who He is and trust in Him and God will bring us through trial so that on the other side we know Him more and we trust Him more. So he, he, will, he will grow me through this. And the last thing is that He will see me through. He will see me through. Nine hours of rowing against these contrary winds in the dark and Christ brought them safely to the other side. Sometimes it feels scary and hopeless and impossible things that you're going through, Christ will bring you through. He will, even if He doesn't bring you through physically, because we all will die somehow, someday. Sometimes it's unexpected. Sometimes it's something we can anticipate. The slow decline. He will. He will get us through even that, and He will bring us safely home to glory. He will. He will get us through. We have that confidence. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would. Um, for those that are in the storm now, and we know many that are, and there are other storms brewing that we probably don't even know about. They're carrying them secretly. I pray that they would, and I pray that they would invite us in to, to, um, to bear that burden with them, God. But, uh, but for, for those that are facing it right now, I pray that they would, they would speak to themselves truth. The, the, the words of Scripture would be words that they say to themselves and say to you in prayer, God. And again, these these truths don't make the hardships just disappear and don't make, make dark days sunny, but they, they give us an anchor in the midst of chaos. They give us something to hold on to while we wait for you and we wait for your deliverance. And so I pray that they will take heart, take comfort in these things, wait on you, may their souls wait in silence, the confidence that they will not be greatly shaken. They may be shaken, but they won't be shaken ultimately. And so, Lord... Prepare, the, prepare all of us, God, for what we might face. Prepare us to be greater, greater encouragers of those who are suffering, to not shy away, to not be embarrassed by, but to move alongside those who are hurting, uh, not to shame, but to love, to show compassion, um, to be a, a tangible expression of your presence. Um, so, Lord, help us as a church. Uh, even the storms we've gone through as a body collectively over the last year, God, we need to be reminded of these things. You are with us. You're praying for us. You will get us through. You will grow us through this. Whatever we face, you, you're, you're with us. And we take great confidence in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.